you're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dunn. That's right. Welcome in, everyone, to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas, from ESPN.com, and joining us, as always, from USA Today and MMAJunkie.com, it's Ben Folks. Ben, as the listening audience is about to find out, this week your voice sounds like a 47-year-old divorcee who's been doing nothing but smoking Newports and drinking whiskey for like the past two decades. Well, that is specific. Do you want to explain yourself? Are you ill? Do you have a cold? What's going on? I'm neither ill, nor do I have a cold. Uh, I got caught in a uh, a guillotine choke. Oh, Jesus Christ. At jiu-jitsu for a little bit longer than I should have. I think I might have bruised the old trachea there, uh, but I'm okay. Well, if I would have known that the story was that manly, I would not have asked you. Yeah, now you feel like an idiot. I do kind of feel yeah. like an idiot. You're a divorcee. How you like that? <laughs> wow, you just put that straight in my face. Turned it right around on you. As usual, this episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast comes to you in three rounds. In round number one, Misha Tate and Kat Zingano engaged in a slobber knocker on Saturday night at the Ultimate Fighter Season 17 live finale. But what are the ramifications of Zingano emerging the victor? And in round number two... Is it possible that Uriah Hall passed Misha Tate on her way back to the locker room and she leaned over and whispered to him, just coast, just coast, because <laughs> that's sure how it looked. And in round three, it's Bendo time, and we promise that's not as gross as it sounds. Ben, this week's music on the Co-Main Event podcast comes to us from friend of the podcast, Marco Bucci. Oh, I was really hoping you were going to say Dave Mustaine. Oh, man, that would be awesome. Yeah. I wonder how much that would cost. I bet we could get Dave Mustaine to do uh, music for the podcast as a, at a surprisingly reasonable rate these days. I think if you were to send a really over-the-top complimentary email to Dave Mustaine, you might get that bad boy for free. Just uh, saying. You, who do you think is buying Megadeth CDs at this point? Like Stone Cold Steve Austin and nobody else, right? Well, I, I think I think you underestimate Megadeth's audience. I don't know if you remember from the Some Kind of Monster documentary. Oh, I remember everything about it, sir. Uh, the scene where Dave Mustaine says that when he walks down the street and people shout Metallica at him and then asks, how do you think it feels being number two? So I think that pretty much proves Megadeth number two band of all time, right? To which everyone watching the documentary said in unison, number two? <laughs> Anyway, uh, Ben, longtime listeners of the podcast will remember Marco Bucci as the artist who painted the Anderson Silva portrait that we gave away during last year's essay contest. And whose art turns out to be totally fucking sweet. It is, yeah. Um, it turns out he's also into music. So we're going to be hearing from uh, his solo project today, Disbanded. And if you, can, if you like it, you can find their music at disbanded.bandcamp.com. And we're also going to hear from his band, the Bucci Brothers Band. Whoa, so we have two different musical yeah, projects yes. and one? Yeah, and the Bucci Brothers Band, you can find them at the website, thebuccibrothers.com. Are there actual brothers in there? or That I don't know. Well, you I don't know if it's... Research. I should have done more research here. Yeah, that's, that's true. Uh, but right now, without further ado, like we always do about this time, let's do some listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail comes to us this week from Mike Robertson, who writes... In light of Matt Mitrione's delightful tirade and subsequently Dana White's damning judgment that, quote, he shouldn't have been doing that interview anyway, do you think that the UFC have a fucking clue about, handle the, how, about how to handle these situations? The constant repetition of the, quote, suspend, apologize, donate cycle doesn't seem to be cutting it. Is there more that the UFC could be doing, or should they be able to assume that their employees won't be dicks on a regular basis? Ultra uh, alternatively, do you feel that the UFC has a culture of people saying whatever the fuck they like? I think we can answer that immediately <laughs> and just say yes. Uh, Mike Robertson goes on. Dana White is no stranger to controversy, and Joe Rogan has been walking the fine line between being a comedian and a bit of a dick with his recent rally against feminism. I appreciate that Joe Rogan is an outspoken comedian alongside his position at the UFC, but his Twitter following and the reach of his podcast make him arguably the most influential voice of the UFC. 
with Mitrione even referencing said podcast. Does Joe Rogan slash Dana slash Forrest Griffin saying whatever the fuck they like give other fighters the impression that they can also say whatever the fuck they like? In answer to that last part, probably, yeah. Yeah, I I, agree. I think uh, you could tell a lot by the fact that Mitrione referenced Joe Rogan's discussion about Fallon Fox on his podcast, like... As if, as if that was part of his reason for deciding to go off on it. Uh, and it seemed that, you know, for one thing, he went way more off on it than Joe Rogan did, uh, and in a different kind of fashion. So he should not maybe be too surprised that the UFC had a different response to, to his take on it than to Joe Rogan's. Uh, but, you know, in a lot of ways, I felt like the UFC's response to this situation shows that they're learning. They're slowly, slowly, they are slowly learning. But, you know, we have an actual code of conduct now, uh, which kind of explicitly spells out. Don't do the exact thing that Matt Mitrione just did. Um, and that, you know, the response from the UFC was really swift. It was that same day they announced that he was suspended and that they were appalled by his comments. I mean, I think it, it would have been probably a little bit better if Dana White had not chosen to focus on the fact that Mitrion was doing an interview when he no longer had a fight to promote, which makes it look like you're only really concerned about your business aspects of this rather than the, you know, human aspect of it. But I thought in general, step in the right direction for the UFC. Yeah, I agree with that. I will say that, well, first of all, I feel like this happened six months ago. This happened as, <laughs> as so often happens. This happened like right after we recorded the podcast. Uh, Mitrione got his contract suspended. Feels to me like it was six months ago. It was really, uh, a mere seven days ago. And it's, it seems at this point, like we are kind of guaranteed whenever we record a podcast right after we get it in the can, some shit's about to some go shit down. Some shit is going to go down. Yeah. Um, and I agree with you that it, it felt like that this was an appropriate response for the UFC, but I will say in this instance, it was a little bit strange because, it felt like for a while there, the UFC sort of forgot that it was supposed to be trying to be friendly to the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender community. And then Mitrione totally went off and, and then they remembered, oh shit, we're supposed to be doing a better job at this. And then they, they find him because he was certainly not the first guy to kind of blur or stretch the boundaries of what you should be saying or like what's socially acceptable to say about uh, Fallon Fox, about a transgendered athlete, because, you know, we've seen the reports that uh, Matt Hughes, who's the guy who's supposed to be responsible for enf- enforcing yeah. this code of conduct. Policy. He's the guy who's supposed to be mentoring these guys. Yeah, we've seen reports that he referred to Fallon Fox as an it during a, uh, a Q&A that he was doing, live public Q&A at a recent UFC event. Uh, obviously, Joe Rogan did his thing on his podcast. Cain Velasquez, I think, came out and said some stuff. Like, Cain Velasquez is always going to be appropriate. The things that he said were not uh, inappropriate in any way, but he had come out and voiced his opinion that uh, he didn't think that, that she should be fighting women. And so I could totally understand how, if you were Matt Mitrione, you would look around and say, oh, it's totally cool for me to yeah. say this stuff. Open season. And then you might be surprised <laughs> when, uh, when you get the, the news from the UFC that you're going to be punished because we haven't heard anything about any of these other people being punished. So, uh, I agree with you. I think the UFC did the right thing. They do need to start sending the message that dudes can't be doing this kind of shit. Uh, it seemed a little weird to me for them to just suddenly like poke their heads out of the rabbit hole and suspend Matt Mitrione. Although I guess he said the worst stuff out yeah, of anyone. He definitely did. I mean, like it's worth it to go back and, uh, compare and contrast Mitrione's comments with somebody like Cain Velasquez. And Cain Velasquez essentially says that he thinks that Fallon Fox's unfair advantage should not be allowed to compete against women in, in MMA, but makes that point, you know, respectfully and without launching like just an absurd personal attack on somebody he doesn't know. You know, I don't think, I think a lot of people respond to this by like, oh man, it's political correctness run amok. You can't even have an opinion about this transgender fighter. No, you can. Plenty of people have expressed that same basic opinion, but you can express the opinion without being a dick about it. Matt Mitrione set out to be a dick about it because he thought that he was going to be really funny that way. Uh, and I think, you know, some people have made a valid complaint that a lot of media members have seized on this as a good headline generator. Like if I have an interview with some UFC fighter, 
someone in there, I'm going to squeeze in a question about Fallon Fox and see if they'll say something ridiculous. But then that's not what happened here either. I mean, it was Mitrione's idea to talk about this. And when he started talking about it in that fashion, Ariel Helwani was visibly uncomfortable with it. Like, because he obviously knew that it was a bad idea. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So you can't really blame that one there. You know, that, that was all on Mitrione. Uh, and I think under the circumstances, UFC showing that, that they're starting to figure some of that shit out with their response. Second question this week comes from Roman from Berlin, who writes, Is it just me, or should women's mixed martial arts fighters get a lecture in clothing suitable for grappling matches? Oh, here we go. In the last Ronda Rousey fight, we almost saw a wardrobe malfunction, and when Mr. Calloway uh, tenderly rearranged Misha Tate's top this weekend, I could just shake my head. Why don't they wear rash guards, which cover everything from elbow to waist? Or is it a ruse to make people, and by people I mean straight men and and homosexual women, watch it more? You know, this brings up an interesting point. A conversation that we had while watching the fights. Sitting there watching the fights. uh, I got a text from uh, one of my good friends and and jujitsu training partners. uh, Jesus, enough with your personal exploits today. (laughs) Dan DeStefano. And he was saying, you know... I don't think that we should have to pretend that women's MMA isn't hot. And I get what he's saying there. Because there is, I think, from some of us who consider ourselves a little more highbrow in our appreciation of women's uh, mixed martial arts, that we're not out there, like, we're not out trying to watch foxy boxing. We're We're not trying to watch mud wrestling. We're not just interested in the pretty girls in women's MMA. We're interested in it for the same reasons that we're interested in men's MMA, for the sport aspect. At the same time, Two attractive fit women in spandex or skorts or whatever, uh, that little, uh, whatever you call that little skirt short type deal that Misha Tate wears, uh, out there beating each other up. It does seem awesome for two reasons. Uh, is it okay to say that? Can you say that without sounding like a total creep? No, you sound like a creep okay. when you say it. Uh, All right. I can live with that, I guess. Yeah, you have to. You have no choice but to live with the fact that you're a creep. All right. Uh, You know, I want to give a shout out to Sarah Kaufman here because Sarah Kaufman is one of the female fighters who does, in fact, come out in a rash guard or or wears an appropriate shirt that that isn't going to result in a wardrobe malfunction. And clearly female fighters do gives no, you know, no uh, she doesn't give a shit if she looks pretty or is attractive to the male audience or whatever. And I think that's awesome. Sarah Kaufman just goes out there and, and beats ass and goes home, which uh, I'm into. And I, I kind of see where Roman is coming from in this, because we talked about it during the, the Ronda Rousey, Liz Carmouche fight where there was a near wardrobe malfunction. And in the, in the aftermath, we were sort of like, well, that would have been one of the only things that could have happened that would have overshadowed the awesomeness of the fight. And that would have been a shame because you wouldn't want to get up the day after the first, uh, women's MMA fight in the UFC and have all the, 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 the goddamn muck raking MMA journalists (laughs) with their headline generators talking about, uh, how nip slip. Yeah, exactly. So, um, and, and I think more to the point, the thing that Roman gets to here is that female fighters are, 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 they're going out there trying to look hot, right? I think that's one of their one of their concerns there. I mean, but that is it so different than what we see in men's MMA? Like George St. Pierre is the you know, we're told by the UFC the pay-per-view king, right? Mm-hmm. Doesn't seem like an accident that he's also the fighter most likely to get your girlfriend to sit down and watch MMA, right? That he is uh, you know, female MMA fans go crazy for some GSB. Doesn't seem like like those two are unrelated. So it, it seems like there are some men that are able to, to capitalize on that. Uh, and we know that I mean, women in MMA have been accusing each other of it for like the last ten years of you know exploiting their sexuality in unfair ways. So, but I don't know. I feel like at some point we're kidding ourselves if we act like that's not going to be part of it. No, that is going to be part of it. But but I think that you know we have to get to the point where women's MMA is considered on par with men's MMA and that they're not, they're no longer facing these sort of stereotypes and people that are just going to, going to say, you know, blanket statements like they, they're not interested in watching girls fighting, et cetera, et cetera. When we get to that point, then, then maybe it could become acceptable 
to for Dan DeStefano to think of that. Wait, so wait, you're saying thought. you're saying we must first get everybody on board with a nuanced uh, understanding, and then oh, we yeah. can admit that it's hot. That's gonna it's gonna happen any time now, right? I mean, I feel well, like- I mean, I see it's a double standard, right? An obvious double double standard where your girlfriend can talk about how George St. Pierre is hot and doesn't necessarily look like a creep, but when Ben Folks talks about how hot the ladies are. Uh, he does look like a creep, well, and, and that's a, a double standard, but the lesbian, reason that it's a double standard is that women's MMA is still emergent. A lesbian MMA fan uh, could be like, oh, hey, Katz and Gano is super hot, and it wouldn't seem creepy. It might. I don't know. It depends on the lesbian, right? <laughs> it depends on her tone of voice when she says it. <laughs> yeah, it depends a lot on tonally and context. Uh, let's just if she's it. sucking on a new port in, uh, in between sentences. Yeah, drinking wild turkey. Yeah. Let's do the uh, the last question. Last question this week comes from Kent Carter. Standing elbows have been a woefully underutilized technique in MMA, but on Saturday night, their effectiveness was on full display. Clint Hester finished with one. Travis Brown beat down the base of Gabe Gonzaga's brainstem with several. Scott Jorgensen caught Uriah Faber's attention with, with them more than once. And the girl who wasn't Misha Tate finished Misha Tate with a bow upside the dome. <laughs> It's a great Good weapon work. to use, and I'm glad to see that they're being thrown into MMA more often. What do you guys think is the most underutilized technique? Oh, I didn't think the question was going to take that turn. No, it's very broad, but I, I mean, good point from Kent Carter. I think that that the uh, standing elbows made a uh, made a, a big appearance this last Saturday, especially with Ga- with uh, Travis Brown finishing Gabriel Gonzaga on the feet from a position that you see guys get into a lot. And, you know, Travis Brown was able to do something pretty explosive and devastating from that position that uh, was kind of surprising to see it end that way, I thought. And according to the appeal that uh, Gabriel Gonzaga's team says they'll file, illegal. They claim that those elbows were illegal. Maybe that's one of the reasons you don't see guys trying it more often because you risk elbowing the dude in the back of the head. Well, is that what they're saying, that he got elbowed in the back of the head, or are they saying that there were 12 to 6 elbows? I think they're going to latch on to anyone that but not any any one thing that gets them any traction yeah. whatsoever and the the 12 to 6 elbow thing is weird right because it's like if you make the same elbowing motion but it's like from 11 to 5 right rather than exactly 12 yeah, to 6 fine. then you're, you're in fine. The clear yeah uh that that part makes no sense to me the part about trying to determine whether those elbows hit him in the back of the head that's such a tough distinction to make. I mean, I saw people fired up about it on Twitter, but it's like if you're hitting the guy around his ear and in the back of the ear and that's that's okay, and then the guy kind of lifts off to the side once he starts feeling woozy, then some of those find their way to the back of the head. What are we really supposed to do there? Yeah, the the back of the head rule is one that has always sort of bothered me, and you know that I love rules. <laughs> I know you oh, do. Oh, I love the shit out of some rules, but the back of the head one is just weird because it seems almost unenforceable at times. It's almost like holding in football. It's like you could call it in almost every fight, especially yeah. during finishing sequence. We see pretty routinely people just get blasted in the back of the head, and, and more often than not... Nothing happens to yeah. them. Conor McGregor, uh, when he was finishing off Marcus Brimage, blasting him at least once or twice in the back of the head as he was going down. Yeah. And, but, I mean, and that seems weird because it seems like if it's a rule, you should enforce it. And if it's not a rule, then you shouldn't enforce it, right? Well, and and it, it puts the referee in this very weird situation where they're trying to – they're having to try to make this uh, distinction about intent and, you know, what – you know, what, what is meaningful or hurtful, et cetera, et cetera. And, and what just happens during the normal flow of action, which I think is the, a bad place to put a person who's already trying to officiate a, a sporting event as difficult to rein in as MMA. It seems like the de facto rule has evolved to become, unless you just line up size, you know, sight in right on the back of the dude's skull, right in, right in the old brainstem there and just blast away with a shot while he's clearly not moving to, to make it more likely that he'll get hit in the back of the head. Nothing crazy is going on. You're just standing there and you just haul off and hit him in the back of the head. Most of the time, anything other than that, you'll be fine. Yeah. It's kind of like withholding where, yeah, if you're, if you're holding in close, uh, you're probably going to get away with it. If you get way out away from your body with holding, if you're holding so much that we see the jersey being pulled away from the player's body in football, then you're probably going to get called. It seems a lot like that. The weirdest thing was the thing on Twitter where a bunch of people were saying, oh, it was fine because Gabriel Gonzaga was already out by the time he got hit in the back of the head, which is just 
really weird if you think about it. It's sort of like, well, if your opponent is unconscious, then you're allowed to do just whatever. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. Well, and we do this with a lot of different rules, it seems, with MMA. Like the same thing that came up when uh, people were trying to figure out whether the one of the big knees that set off Kat Zingano's finish of Misha Tate was illegal. Tate had one hand on the mat. Uh, you couldn't tell if the hand came up right after she got hit with the knee, right before, simultaneously. I mean, it happened all really quickly. Um, but it's also one of those where then people will go back and be like, oh, well, Tate was playing the game, man. Or, you know, that's a bullshit rule anyway. You know, she was getting her ass kicked anyway. You know, MMA fans find no problem in yeah. just kind of retroactively going back and talking about why, sure, the rule was violated. A competitor had a reason to expect that it would be enforced. But, hey, it didn't really matter, so we're not going to pay much attention to it. Anyway, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question or a comment for future episodes of the Co-Main Event Podcast, you know how to get a hold of us. Go to the website, comaineventpodcast.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says Email the Podcast. As for right now, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one right now. Well, Ben, we've talked in the past about how it can seem sort of lame and patronizing when a bunch of dudes jump on their Twitters while a, a female MMA fight is going on to be all, oh, the girls always steal the show, you know, like pat them on the back. They're trying super hard. Yeah. But in this case, Kat Zangano and Misha Tate really did steal the fucking show. Their fight was awesome. It was awesome. And, you know, we were talking about this fight card beforehand that didn't really seem like it had a headliner uh Uriah Faber Scott Jorgensen for kind of unclear stakes in the bantamweight division we weren't really sure that was a great main event I mean this fight when you think about it now a it was to determine who's the number one contender and who's going to coach opposite Ronda Rousey pretty big career opportunity for whoever wins and b it just turned out to be an awesome awesome fight yeah i mean that seemed like more main event worthy than anything else we saw on the card. Yeah, it definitely did, especially in hindsight, because it turned out to be such a great fight. Um, obviously, Kat Zangano emerged with sort of a comeback victory in the third round, uh, stopping Misha Tate via TKO. Uh, we were talking about this as the fight was happening, but it kind of seemed like in this fight to me that Misha Tate's own game plan sort of got in her way because clearly she came out of her corner with the idea that she was going to dominate this fight with her wrestling, take Zingano down and, you know, control her, maybe get a submission or a, a TKO on the mat. Uh, but in the really early going, it seemed like she was just lighting Kat Zingano up on the feet. And it seemed like if she would have kept the fight there, she may well have ended up knocking her out or putting her in a position where she could grab a, a submission or, or get a TKO. And yet she kind of continually shot for a couple of takedowns that put the, the fight onto the mat where Zingano was actually able to have some success in scrambles and uh, sort of slow down Misha Tate's momentum a little bit. Is And then I guess after the fight, Zangano came out and was pretty honest about the fact that she was sort of scared and like maybe her head wasn't totally in the game in the early going. But is this an instance where uh, Misha Tate kind of maybe outthunk herself a little bit? She might have because it did seem like her her approach was to strike her way into her takedowns and that's where she thought she was going to win it. But the striking on the feet was so successful. And when you look at uh, Zangano's past fights, I mean, she can be really aggressive on the feet, but doesn't seem like she's as technically sound as Misha Tate is on the feet. Seemed like that would have been a good place to keep the fight. Uh, and I don't know if I really want to take down the woman who's married to a, a jujitsu black belt. Uh, she might know what she's doing down there, you know? So uh, I don't know. It also seemed like Tate was kind of in control and then maybe hit a wall there, maybe gassed out a little bit in the second round, uh, trying for finishes. Uh, you know, she hasn't fought since August, since that she w had that war with Julie Kedzie, and she had to take some time after that one. Uh, so maybe coming back for this fight was a little tougher than she thought it was going to be, because, man, when they started that third round, uh, it was all Zingano. Came right out there with the, the low takedown and then just put it on her from that point. Yeah, which was weird, because for the first, I would say, first half of the fight, it certainly looked like we were cruising toward a Misha Tate victory. Uh, and so for Zingano to, to, to kind of marshal the forces and, and craft that comeback, I thought was really impressive. And, uh, 
you know, I guess if you wanted to make blanket statements, what they do, which we do, uh, totally prove something about her as a fighter. I think that she was able to, to sort of come back in that situation and, uh, you know, get a, a third round stoppage in a fight where she might've been down two rounds to, to none. I don't, I don't really know. Yeah, well, she was. And I, I mean, I guess the question is what, what does this outcome mean for the UFC trying to promote this female coached uh, season of tough now? I mean, you made the, the case before that, we really wanted Misha Tate in there, that that would be the best thing. Well, the UFC tough. did. I thought yeah. that they felt like, uh, they felt like they wanted, uh, Misha Tate in there because she has an established, uh, rivalry with Ronda Rousey. And the fact that I think coming into this fight, she was maybe regarded as the biggest threat to Ronda Rousey still, even though she lost that first fight. But I don't know. I mean, I feel like when you get your arm ripped off in the first round, we feel like we've seen that. I, no, I, I agree. That and that's a fresh and, challenger might be more interesting. That's and to be honest with you, that's how I feel coming out of this fight. Uh, and uh, uh, authored an, a thing on ESPN.com this week. Authored, that huh? said that. Authored oh wow, it. that's big time. That's yeah. big boy talk right there. Blogged is what he means. Yeah, blog, blog, I blogged the shit out of it. Uh, th- that I feel like in retrospect, maybe Kat Zingano is the better person to have on tough. Uh, not only because she now has this story where she has sort of rocketed out of obscurity and become the tough coach. Whereas maybe two weeks ago, she would have felt like an appropriate candidate to be a contestant on yeah. tough. Uh, and, and the truth is after watching Ronda Rousey and Misha Tate get in each other's faces during the lead up to their first fight, I started thinking maybe that's not the kind of thing that would really play that great on a full season of reality television. Yeah, you we saw it in the past on season 10 with Quentin Jackson and Rashad Evans, where their personal animosity totally overshadowed everything else about that season. And so often episodes just devolved into them, like repeating the same phrase to each other yeah. over and I'm over again. You clean out. Yeah. And you know, that, that really kind of ruined that whole season of the ultimate fighter. And, and I thought the same thing, not that it ruined the season, but the same thing sort of happened with Brock Lesnar when he was on tough, where he was like heralded as, Oh, Brock Lesnar is going to be on this season of the ultimate fighter. It's going to be awesome. He's going to shatter all these, you know, ratings records or whatever. And he didn't. And once you got a load of him for a couple of hours, you were like, man, I don't know that the full season of reality television is the right place to promote Brock Lesnar. But he was there just trying to make, Chicken, chicken salad, salad out of chicken, chicken shit. shit. Yeah, no, that was just one catchphrase. Over and over repeated again. it like a thousand times. And I started to wonder maybe if that was the case with Rousey and Misha Tate, that like their personal beef would eventually become tiresome if we had to watch it for hours at a time on the, on a full season of this show. So it's interesting to me because it seems like Kat Zingano isn't going to do that. If, if the, the brief exposures that we've had to her so far, are any indication, it doesn't really seem like she's going to play the trash talk game. Yeah. And so I think it'll be interesting to see her on this season of the ultimate fighter. Cause we don't really know what to expect. She's sort of brand new to us. And so I, I feel like that's something that the show can capitalize on. And it will be frankly interesting to see how Ronda Rousey responds. If the coach who is up opposite her is respectful and wants to have a, a good time coaching the, the <laughs> men's and the women's. Well, you know, you mentioned that, and, and you're not far off to say that a couple of weeks ago, it seemed like it would not have been outrageous for Katz and Gano to try out for this season. And at least from what we're hearing, a lot of pretty accomplished female fighters are trying out for this season of tough. I mean, hopefully uh, the UFC really seriously considers them and does not just choose, you know, Based on other reality TV concerns, like what <laughs> you you know damn well what. <laughs> Hopefully they don't just go out there looking for a female Junie Browning. Hopefully they are looking for the best fighters because I think that there are a lot of really good, really experienced, accomplished female fighters that you it could really be almost like a comeback type season. Uh, what was that season four, season three? They did the the comeback. Sure, yeah, something like that. Why not? Uh, Who's counting anymore? Yeah, but, Watch the goddamn thing 17 times at this point. <laughs> but I think that has a real appeal. If you have all of these, these female fighters who, you know, hey, they were hoping to be picked up by the UFC too, didn't happen. So now they're trying this avenue to get in there and they've been doing it for years and not really getting the respect. I think that's a really interesting thing to, to watch play out and could be the perfect antidote to what we've seen happening on Tough where 
you know, you're basically just getting a bunch of guys who are like three and four and oh and haven't really fought anybody, but uh, they'll work cheap and you bring them on there and then you try and build them up into something that they're not so that they, you know, you can promote them when the show's over. This one, you already have people who have been doing this and are serious professionals. Uh, I mean, I think it could be a good shot in the arm for a reality TV series that I think we both agree needs one. Yeah, and it would be really awesome if that happened and if that was the avenue that they decided to pursue in terms of promotion. You don't seem optimistic. I'm expecting food fights and people (laughs) making out on the first episode. I think it's what you're going to see is uh, business as usual over on the 18th installment. The 18th installment. 18! I think you would really enjoy is uh, Rock of Love. I think that that's more your style. Yeah, and they had the good sense to pull the plug on Rock of Love after like three seasons. <laughs> after 18, they did the bus. We've done the Ultimate Fighter 18 <laughs> times. Ugh. Now we're, we're also moving over to Fox Sports 1 with this uh, this season of the Ultimate Fighter, which could be a good thing and, and could be a bad thing. We, we just need to wait and see what that channel looks like, I think. See what other programming is on there. See uh, what kind of role the UFC has. Because, you know, if it turns out to be a channel that actually does – uh, gain a following and and maybe even rivals ESPN in the in the twenty four hour cable sports uh, channel game. That'll be awesome. And I think if it turns out to be the CBS Sports Network, which exists but no one watches, that might not be so great. Yeah, well, I think that you can you can rely on the UFC to bring its. I mean, the, obviously, if those people go to watch shit on Fuel TV, they'll follow you anywhere. It will follow you across the damn desert if there are some some prelim fights in it for them. Uh, you you see what else is on Fuel TV? Yeah, yes, action the, sports. Dudes, you know, breaking their ankles on skateboards and jumping around on uh what do you what do you call those motorbikes? The, motorcycles. Motorbikes, there you go. Jumping around on those motorbikes, these damn kids. You know, if people will go and even complain about not getting that channel, which they don't give a shit about any other time, then that shows I think that the, it, it is a pretty good bet if you're like, okay, a certain number of hardcore fight fans, they'll go watch wherever you put the UFC. Uh, and that can really be a backbone to, to build on. I mean, we know FX got the movies, Fuel TV got the... Now FX only going to got the movies. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it makes sense for it to, to be on a, a sports-oriented network where that can be the thing that is the UFC is associated with, where you can keep all the stuff in one place. Yeah, I guess my question is, is it going to be the UFC and other, you know, primetime A-list sports broadcast entertainment? Or is it going to be the UFC and the Division Two NCAA basketball championship? I'll watch whatever. that. Well, yeah, I'll watch it and you'll watch it, but most people will not. I think that, that the success of, of, of Fox Sports 1 and Fox Sports 2, let's not forget about that guy <laughs> still hanging around. And the upper reaches of the television dial probably depends on on what kind of programming they're able to offer. Uh, but right now, that's going to wrap up our discussion in round number one. Sir Nigel Longstock is here. We tried to record a spot with him last week, but our technical difficulties. Uh, Chad fucked up. Put it in the put it in the trash can. So he's he's we're going to redo it. We're doing it over. New tweets and a new episode of Master Tweet Theater, which begins right now. that time again we welcome back to the podcast noted theatricalist our friend and yours sir nigel longstock sir nigel how are you good day to you sir i am fine you know even in these little exchanges of pleasantries you managed to make it seem weird a dramatic pause was it not the actor's craft one might even say a pregnant pause Hmm. well for those of you who don't know how this works sir nigel is going to read us off five different tweets from five different people in the mma sphere if you will and chad and i will attempt to guess who the tweeter in question was sir nigel whenever you're ready go ahead and hit us with the first one yes let us begin there's a theme to this week's oh lovely tweets the theme is daily life (laughs) however do you do it tweet the first I'm about to go on a tweeting strike if Twitter doesn't at very least double the allowable character count. Well, I assume that this person must be somewhat of enormous influence. Otherwise, why would they even think they stood a chance, Chad, of having Twitter change its policies for them? 
Yeah, also someone apparently, A, with a lot to say, someone very verbose, uh-huh. and I guess maybe someone who just doesn't understand how Twitter works, which frankly could be anyone. Yeah, see, that really opens it up. I'm going to say Lorenzo Fertitta. Huh, interesting. Ah, uh, boy. I'm going to go with someone a little older. Uh, how about uh, at MMA Hammerhouse, at Hammerhouse MMA, Mark Coleman? <laughs> Wait, is, is that is Mark Coleman really tweeting from that? I think so. I think that's his Twitter handle. He just had uh, hip replacement surgery a couple weeks ago, right? Wow. All right. Sir Nigel? Well, first of all, speedy recovery to Mark Coleman. <laughs> Second of all, both fine guesses, both as usual, incorrect. It is, in fact, Sean McCorkle. God damn it. Oh. Threatening to stop tweeting as if he were Cobra Commander with some sort of mutagen. <laughs> well, hey, we already lost Matt Mitrione from Twitter. I don't know if at least Master Tweet Theater could handle losing Sean McCorkle, who Chad just subs in when he thinks Matt Mitrione. Man, now I'm fucked. Yeah. I didn't guess... McCorkle. McCorkle's been used. Not <laughs> options. Yeah. yeah. Possibly gonna get forever. <laughs> mm, tweet the second. So far, another poor episode of Game of Thrones, focusing on pointless, boring plot lines. What? Okay, wait. When was this tweet sent out? This tweet was sent out uh, approximately 24 hours ago. So they're referring to the most recent episode of Game of Thrones. Oh, yes, and it's many boring plot elements. <laughs> well, first of all, I don't know how you followed Game of Thrones this long if you find plot lines boring, because there's a whole bunch of them. Uh, second of all, you know, this to me sounds like it's kind of grouped in the same category from the people who... Tweet about how they're up super early at 10 a.m., ready to go get a smoothie and go to the park. That's right. I'm talking ring girls, and I'm going to say Ariane Celeste. Mm. Ariane Celeste, tired of these motherfucking plot lines, son. I think that's an okay guess. I don't know if I can even see Ariane Celeste sitting through an episode of Game of Thrones. Uh, I think it's too negative for this to be right, but I'm going to go with Loretta Hunt because I see her tweeting about television a lot. Okay. Both fine guesses both strangely assume that women are not interested in story, and both wrong! It is, in fact, Michael Bisping. Oh, come on, Michael Bisping. So far, another pet episode. <laughs> Your Michael Bisping is the worst. <laughs> what is that? He only has access to one vowel, sir. It's at. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that is awful. Yes, yes. Well, tweet the third. <clears throat> Just survived another yoga class. Great for my stretching and flexibility. My body feels relaxed now. Not so much during the class, though! Exclamation point. Now, see, here is where I go, Ariane Celeste. Okay, all right. I'm going to go with someone who I know, like me, is a hot yoga enthusiast, Johnny Hendricks. Both fine guesses. Thrilling news about Johnny Hendricks that I had not been aware of. Both wrong. It is, in fact, Chris Laban. Chris the Recoverer Laban. Oh, interesting. Didn't know that. Didn't know he was a yoga guy. Yeah, well, I mean, I get, maybe you have learned a lesson about trying to pigeonhole Chris Laban into too small a category. I doubt it. Yeah, probably <laughs> not. It seems he has just begun yoga. It's great for his stretching. Yes, well, we'll see him down at the uh, the organic food store eating some wheatgrass later on, I'm sure. Uh, tweet the fourth. I always know it's a good day when a price tag peels off in one piece and saves me 20 minutes of picking at bits. I'm going to say Josh Barnett. I'm just going to say it, and I'm, gonna, I'm not going to give any reason. Interesting. Picking it bits? Uh, picking at bits. Picking at bits. Bits of price tag. Uh, how about Englishman Brad Pickett? Both fine guesses. One of them eerily close to correct. It is, in fact, Englishman Dan Hardy. Oh, damn it. Dan Hardy. I knew someone who said bits would have to be English. Poppin' tags. That's actually not bad deductive reasoning on your part. Close, no cigar. Textual analysis is how I would describe that. <laughs> He's a profiler. All right, tweet the fifth. Oh, I'm fine. You know when your buddy beats you at Madden and you get mad and then you realize it's cost you half a paycheck? That's how I feel. Whoa. That's kind of it's kind of dark. I'm going to say Uriah Hall. Tough 17 finalist Uriah Hall. Wow, interesting. Um, 
Do you think we're talking about a literal game of Madden, or you're saying figurative? Yeah, I'm saying he's saying it's like that. He lost a fight, and Uriah Hall's a video game enthusiast. We know that. Okay, I didn't know that. He, he okay. lost a fight. It cost him half his paycheck. So that's that's my reasoning. I had not thought of that, but I'm totally going to piggyback off your reasoning and say Scott Jorgensen. Huh. I Now I regret explaining my reasoning to you. Sir Nigel? As you should, sir. It is Scott Jorgensen. Ah, motherfucker. Defeated at Madden, which is actually physically fighting a professional fighter for him. Well, and I guess that one makes sense because he was defeated by his buddy, mm-hmm. Uriah Faber. Yeah. So, uh, Son of a bitch. In your face. All right. Well, I'm through explaining anything to you ever. Um, I probably just would have said Sean McCorkle if you had not explained that to me. <laughs> or Ariane Celeste. Well, I guess I guess that wraps up another Master Tweet Theater. Sir Nigel, what do you got going on? Well, it's funny you should ask, sir. I'm, yes, it is. I'm actually shooting for a competing version of Game of Thrones that improves on the original by eliminating all plots. It's called Throne of Boobs. <laughs> well, this one, I, I gotta admit, I'm actually a little bit interested to see. It's very exciting, sir. Well, yeah, coming to bus stations near you. That was Sir, Master, Sir Nigel Longstock, and that was Master Tweet Theater. Good day, sir. So then, Uriah Hall came into the finals of the Ultimate Fighter Season 17 as perhaps the most hyped, tough finalist of all time. And he sure fought like he believed his own hype, with the hands hanging at the waist and the dancing and the showboating. And meanwhile, Kelvin Gastelum came in and fought like he wanted to win the Ultimate Fighter Season 17 crown, which he ultimately did via split decision. Uh, what's your take on this, just to start off? Uh, was Uriah Hall overhyped, or as Dana White, I guess, said at the post-fight press conference, did he have a mental breakdown mentally broke i think is what he said about him that seems a little bit strong yeah Uh, i thought so too (laughs) but uh i mean i think it can be two things i can't i think it can be a little bit that he was overhyped i mean on one hand we saw his his fights he did pull off some awesome shit on people he did go in there and wreck some faces uh so you know it's not as if the ufc just built up this this paper tiger here you know he He's got some legit skills, but, you know, he did not really fight like he was really concerned with showing them. He, he fought like he, like maybe he thought that this one was already in the bag and we're kind of going to go both go through the motions here. Yeah, I feel like whenever a guy fights where it looks like his game plan is, ah, well, eventually you'll knock him out. It is all, it's a recipe for disaster, I think, because when that doesn't happen, it doesn't seem like the dude has uh, a plan B, really. And I think, you know, you made the point while we were watching, though, that Uriah Hall looked really good in flashes. You know, there were, there were certain uh, exchanges during the fight where you could definitely see that talent in there uh, lurking beneath the surface. The problem was that it did only happen in flashes, and for the rest of the time, he looked very pedestrian. Uh, I will, though make the case that this is one of those occurrences that this sport seems to love to do where we build a guy up into this unstoppable monster. Scariest dude ever on tough. And then when he comes out and underwhelms, everybody's just like, oh, well, that guy sucks. Yeah. That guy sure was overrated. I can't even believe we ever thought that guy was good. I can't believe all you idiots bought the hype on that guy. And for me, uh, that does seem most of the time unfair. And in the case of Uriah Hall, I'm not even sure it applies because there's a lot of demystifying of Uriah Hall going on online in the wake of his loss to, uh, to Kelvin Gastelum in this fight. But it seems to me as I was watching it, that the stakes for Uriah Hall in this fight were almost non-existent because he comes in with a lot of hype and the point of the fight is to win the ultimate fighter title. But the truth of the matter is, He's going to fight in the UFC anyway. Yeah. He, so he's not disappearing. Win, lose, or draw, his future is sort of secure. Clearly, the stakes were much higher for Kelvin Gastelum. That's true. I mean, I would argue that even if you win the Ultimate Fighter, uh, 
it doesn't mean your future is necessarily secure. I mean, look at what's happened to some of the past Ultimate Fighter finalists and winners. Yeah, especially the dudes who win via upset, right? <laughs> I mean, you can still flame out pretty quickly uh, in the UFC after, even after winning the Ultimate Fighter. Winning the Ultimate Fighter does not mean what it once did. And, I mean, remember when the first season of the Ultimate Fighter came out and it was, you know, one winner from each weight class gets a contract. And it was kind of assumed that everybody else... You know, you don't even, that's the closest you're ever going to get to the UFC is competing on the reality show. Uh, and then, as we saw, you know, most of them ended up having careers in the UFC. So, and now we've come to expect that, that if you're on the show and you do reasonably well, you're going to at least going to get a go, uh, regardless of if you make it into the finale or, you know, if, if you win the, the whole thing. So, it almost seems like, yeah, the Ultimate Fighter is a, a launching point, but what we're really going to care about is what you do afterwards. When you're actually in the UFC, that one way or another, that's when we're going to find out what to think about you. And we'll kind of mold our uh, recollection of everything that happened on the show in light of that. Yeah, and so for me, that's why I wonder if this loss for Uriah Hall doesn't ultimately turn out to be the best thing that could have happened for him. Because as you just brought up, even if you win the Ultimate Fighter, it's still, at this point, super easy to flame out after you do that. And imagine for a minute that Uriah Hall had come out and blown through Gastelum like we all thought he was going to. Didn't break a sweat, knocked him out in 30 seconds. Jumping side check kick. Yeah, the side check kick rears its head again. Yeah. Today, we would all be saying, oh my God, Uriah Hall, he's he's an instant contender, which was one of the pre-fight lines of, of hype around him. We would be jumping out of our skin to see him fight again. And we would be advocating that he have a fight with some contender type guy, like, I don't know, Rusum or Paul Horace or something like that. Knowing what we know now about Uriah Hall, it seems like that storyline would have gone terribly for him. <laughs> like we would have hyped him up even more and put him into a fight with, you know, Alan Belcher or somebody. And he just would have got his ass kicked as it stands. Now that hype is totally deflated. He is, as we said, almost certainly still going to get to fight in the UFC, and he's going to get the time to sort of grow and mature like a normal fighter would. And as an offshoot of that, he's probably going to get to fight a lot easier competition when he comes into the UFC. Yeah, for not a whole lot of money. Uh, that's true. But I, I also think, though, that this is the kind of thing that long-term uh, – has a negative effect on the UFC's ability to sell us on the Ultimate Fighter as the toughest tournament in sports, which we kept hearing over and over again. Which, come on. Come on, son. Toughest tournament in sports. How can you then turn around each time and say, all right, okay, this guy, scariest dude we've ever seen on, on the Ultimate Fighter. Best season we've ever had. Yeah. Oh, man, you're not going to want to miss miss these fights. Best best fights of any season we've ever had. You know, you can't just keep doing that over and over and over again. You become the boy who cried awesome fight. And I think that's already happened to some extent uh, because Dana White is known for just repeating the same line over and over again. But, the, you know, this one where it was just like, oh, my God, you guys won't believe this dude. This dude is a monster. And then he comes out there and he looks pretty average. He looks like Felipe Nover. Wow. It was the first dude that they said yeah, was yeah. the next Anderson Silva, and then he got beat in the finals by uh, the uh, lightweight guy who is now not in the UFC anymore. You know, and I remember, I mean, I know that that's some, some element of that has always got to be a part of fight promoting, right? Everything's got to be the fight of the century and the greatest fight you can't afford to miss, otherwise you got to murder your family and stuff like that. I get it. We're always going to sell that angle of it. But, god damn, I mean, can't... After you said 17 seasons of this stuff, can't we at least get a little more realistic about it that, hey, we're seeing uh, auditions, basically? Right. Efren Escudero. That's the dude I was trying go. to think of earlier. Well, in that, in, in that same light, though, just as this loss was arguably good for Uriah Hall, does the fact that Kelvin Gasolum comes in and wins prove to be good for the ultimate fighter? Because I think if you still look at the ultimate fighter as holding this, this role within the company that it's supposed to create guys for them to promote going into the tough 17 finale, all we had heard about was Uriah Hall. And we thought we were going to come out of that event with this one breakout superstar in the middleweight division. As it stands, he got upset. So really what we got 
were two fairly interesting prospects because now we get to sit around and watch what happens to Uriah Hall. We also get to sit around and see what happens to Kelvin Gastelum and see if he becomes uh, Rashad Evans, who was an underdog who won the ultimate fighter season two, or if he becomes Efren Escudero who beats yeah. Felipe Nover and then has a mediocre career in the UFC and, and eventually washes out and goes and fights somewhere else. But I don't, even now I don't hear a whole lot of people talking about Kelvin Gastelum. You know, you don't, you, you he still hear more people talking about Uriah Hall losing than Kelvin Gastelum winning. Sure, but he's going to get to fight time. in the UFC, and then that that promotional uh, 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 argument is going to take hold. Like that's how the UFC will have to promote this guy. Is like he, the underdog surprise winner of the Ultimate Fighter season seventeen. What will become of him? Right. Yeah. Like that's the only way to 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 promote him. Yeah, it is to use the old Rodney Dangerfield get no respect angle, even if it is the UFC itself. In many ways, that is giving him no respect. I don't know. I mean, I guess we'll get to see how that all plays out. Uh, but I do think this kind of showed us the danger of putting your spotlight too firmly on one guy before you know how it's going to turn out, because. Even the UFC wasn't really trying to hype us too hard on Kelvin Gastelum. It was going to be, you know, Uriah Hall versus the other guy who's still around. And now we see how that turned out. All right. Well, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we will move on to round number three. Are You Fucking Kidding Me? The uh, most self-explanatory portion of the co-main event podcast. Ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me? this week? My Are You Fucking Kidding Me? goes out to referee Kim. Seriously, this is your last warning, Winslow. Uh, you know, and I, I hate to get too hard on the referees because they got a tough job. We, we've covered that before, but I don't know what Kim Winslow's deal is, man. And I'm not even talking about the knee to, to Misha Tate. That seemed kind of borderline. Hey, I'll, I'll let you slide on that one because it was close enough that even watching it in slow motion, you can't be sure if it was legal or not. But what is up with Kim Winslow's constant warnings? I mean, in the Misha Tate... Well, now you're just picking on her. In the Misha tate Katzingano fight, she must have mentioned to both fighters to keep their hands out of one another's eyes about a dozen times. And I don't... I didn't really see them putting their fingers in each other's eyes, more like on each other's faces as they were grappling. And it was just any time anybody's finger get anywhere near anybody else's eye, Kim Winslow had to say something about it. I mean, I feel like we got it at that point. Also, earlier in the night, the Maximo Blanco fight... He keeps holding on to the fence to avoid a takedown, and, I mean, she must have warned him six or seven times, and then got, like, okay, seriously, if you do it again, I'm going to take a point. I mean, if you have to warn the guy that many times, maybe you should just go ahead and take the point, because the warning obviously means nothing to him. I mean, come on, if you got to be talking constantly in a fight, at least back that talk up with some action, Kim Winslow. You fucking kidding me with all these warnings? Are you fucking kidding me? Just like, man, you gotta. we just got to do away with these warnings entirely. Yeah, what the hell? Anyway, Ben, this week, I think that we would be remiss if we didn't send a big Are You Fucking Kidding Me out to the John Jones, Chael Sonnen interview spot that took place on the Tough 17 finale broadcast. In the wake of it, I saw a lot of speculation online that maybe Jones was drunk. And while Whoa. I cannot speak to that, the whole thing was, in fact, just a huge fucking train wreck. Between your light heavyweight champion sort of coming off as a sulking monosyllabic teen and Chael Sonnen out there trying to run through his prepared material while simultaneously sort of admitting that he's going to lose this fight, <laughs> which was maybe the weirdest part of it. Uh, you know what it made me wish for? It made me wish that they would just send Dana White and Joe Rogan out there to yell at us about oh, how wow. awesome the upcoming pay-per-view is going to be. That uh, must have been bad if that's what that's you That's how bad it was. It made me wish that the, the thing that is usually the worst part of the show were happening instead of the thing that I was actually watching. So, you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? We'll be right back with round number three. This Saturday, the UFC goes back on the Big Fox Network. This time, Benson Henderson, UFC lightweight champ, takes on Gilbert Melendez, Strike Force lightweight champ. It's a super fight. It is a super fight. This one actually is. I know it's the year of the super fight and all that, but this one actually is a champions versus champion deal. 
Kind of seems like we haven't really heard that much about it, though. I mean, I guess the UFC is really busy trying to give the hard sell to a, a pay-per-view, since that's still how it makes its money. But uh, this is a hell of a fight right here. It is. I mean, the whole card is pretty good because you've also got Daniel Cormier coming in, making his UFC debut. Uh, Nate Diaz fighting on 420. Uh, there's no <laughs> possible way that could go wrong against Josh Thompson. Uh, so, yeah, a, a really good card here. And I think you're right. It does feel like it's flown under the radar a little bit just because maybe they're a little worried now about that it seems like people maybe aren't buying this John Jones, Chael Sonnen thing. And I don't mean buying it literally, but I mean buying it figuratively as a legitimate light heavyweight title fight, which I suppose would lead to them not buying it literally. There now I'm go. confused. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know what I was talking I'm literally about. confused right <laughs> Okay, now. all right. Uh, yeah, but you got to feel good for Gilbert Melendez here because for a couple of years it felt like we were starting to wonder if maybe he was going to miss his window because he was over there in strike force, locked down, uh, with the rest of the other guys over there, we really have felt for a long time like he deserved to be considered one of the best lightweights on the planet. Uh, and we wanted to see him come over to the octagon and try to prove it. And now he's going to get that chance, come in and fight uh, uh, Ben Henderson, who has been uh, a pretty successful uh, UFC champ thus far. So I Benson think Henderson, yeah. Uh, the thing is, we don't... Did I say Ben Henderson? Yeah, well, yeah. I'm just going to call him that forever, obviously. <laughs> um, you can't come in and be in the <laughs> UFC for an extended period of time and then suddenly decide you're going to change your name, dude. It doesn't work like that. Sure I've already locked it into the brain. It's like when Louise Kane yeah. decided that his name was Louise Kanye or whatever they decided there towards the end. No, I know once you've got something locked in the brain, you, you've already lost the key. So Nate Diaz fighting on 420. <laughs> no possible way that could go wrong. The thing I wonder is we don't know for sure if Gilbert Melendez did not, in fact, miss his window. Yeah, no, true. We're going to find out, though. The, his last fight, last fight in Strike Force, that uh, split decision over Josh Thompson – not his best performance, uh, I would say. No. Close fight. He only fought once in 2012, fought, what, twice in 2011. Uh, been almost a year since his last fight. This is kind of a, a tough assignment for him. Yeah, no, the, de the deck is clearly, I think, kind of stacked against him in, in terms of all the stuff you just mentioned. However, it is, I mean, I feel like it's good just to see him in a fight where he stands to gain something. Yes. Because the thing about that Josh Thompson fight, which was the second or third time those guys have fought, was that it, it, like a lot of the fights that Gilbert Melendez had in strike force, it felt like almost a no win situation for him because he goes out there and fights Josh Thompson, who is a legitimately very tough dude that a lot of people who were watching the show probably didn't know anything about. Uh, and so you send Gilbert Melendez out there with his, you know, number two or number three world ranking and the strike force title to fight a guy who's really tough, but nobody knows a thing about it's, it's, it's a situation where he can't really succeed, you know, unless he absolutely blows Josh Thompson's doors off, uh, and because he didn't really do that, they 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 fought kind of a, a it wasn't slow paced, but it certainly wasn't a, a an astoundingly exciting ordeal. Uh, you know, he ended up getting the win, but at the same time, it's it's hard for a guy like that to go into that sort of situation and come out looking any better than he looked going in. Well, here's one of the things I wonder. This is the second time in a row for Benson Henderson fighting on Fox, uh, headlining a, a UFC on Fox event. Is is there something there can take hold for him that now, you know, the people who tuned in last time on Fox who maybe don't necessarily buy the pay-per-views, uh, now maybe do they feel some kind of attachment to Benson Henderson and that's going to get them to come back around for the next time? Because it seems like that's what the UFC is hoping for. I don't know, man. That's, that's goes back to that question of the casual MMA fan that, that we're not sure that if they exist or if we care about them or what, but it, it's, uh, it does seem that way that they, that, you know, there are certain guys that they, that they clearly like to put on these live shows or at least guys that they've put on there a couple of times. I think Nate Diaz has fought on, right. on the live Fox show before. So it's a return trip for a couple of these guys, whether or not they're, uh, their personas or their images or whatever have taken hold with the fight watching public at large who wouldn't ordinarily watch the UFC. I, I don't fucking know, man. You don't know anything. You know what, uh, though, I think is just as interesting for me as the lightweight super fight here. Hey, at least they're putting the, the name of the weight class on the Fox promos too, which there we I go. saw over the weekend. Uh, I got to say, pretty excited to see if uh, Daniel Cormier can go in there and punch the smirk right off of Frank Mir's face. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. It's it's 
it's a fight that I think we all expect Daniel Cormier to win and is there and I think is therefore sort of interesting because of that, because Frank Mir certainly hasn't been as dominant as he once was in his later years, kind of maybe in the twilight of his UFC career. But I still don't know if that I would categorize categorize him as a joke. Like he's still a dangerous dude. And if Daniel Cormier can come out there and tool him in the way that I think a lot of people are expecting, it will certainly put Daniel Cormier on the map even more than he already is in the in the heavyweight landscape. Whether he decides to stick around in that landscape, I guess we'll find out. Yeah. Well, I mean, no, Frank Mir still a, a tough out for anybody out there. I, you know, he a guy like that, uh, experienced fighter with submission skills that can, uh, you know, e- even when he's in trouble, he can pull that out. Uh, I think it's an interesting test for Daniel Cormier. Uh, but I do agree with you. I mean, he's like a four to one, four and a half to one favorite over Frank Mir. It seems kind of weird that we're just expecting Daniel Cormier is going to roll in there, crush a former heavyweight champ, and then probably jump out of the weight class. Yeah, and I think that, you know, the way that we saw him kind of summarily outstrike Josh Barnett in their fight maybe plays into that because uh, I think it's probably easy to cast Frank Mir as a guy who has a very similar skill set to Josh Barnett. Uh, maybe his striking is a little bit better on the feet. I, I, I don't know. Uh, but the, with the way that we saw Cormier kind of out quick and out punch Barnett, Barnett during that fight, I think leads us to believe that if the former Olympic wrestler can keep it on the feet, he, he will probably have success in the striking game. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I wonder though, if that's, if it's going to become a thing where if Daniel Cormier goes out there and, and rolls through Frank Mir, uh, if will the pressure will increase to see him want to stick around at heavyweight. Because I, I mean, I understand that a lot of people could look at that and say, Hey, you know, having him win a high profile fight on, on Fox will only help you then later sell a, a John Jones fight. And God knows that John Jones, uh, needs some competition in his own weight class, even somebody who has to come down from heavyweight. Uh, you know, that would be a refreshing change at this point. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, if you're going in there and you're beating the shit out of heavyweights, why shouldn't you stay at heavyweight? Right. And some of that may depend on what happens with Cain Velasquez because ain't nobody holding on to that title very long. No, I know. But uh, Cain Velasquez and, and Cormier are obviously teammates over at AKA. I think they've said that they would fight each other for the heavyweight title, but I don't think that they really want to. Uh, and obviously everyone expects Cain Velasquez to take care of business against, uh, against Bigfoot Silva in his upcoming fight. So unless something crazy happens there where Bigfoot Silva is able to defy the odds yet again, at which point, shit, let's just make a fucking TV movie about the guy because <laughs> clearly he's got a story we can all get behind. But, uh, uh, you know, unless that happens, I th- you probably see Daniel Cormier go go down to light heavyweight, right? Because I'm not really seeing, even though he's been obviously very successful at heavyweight, there seems to be more, the bigger payday, I think, against Jones and more opportunity for advancement, whereas he's teammates with the dude who's the champ at heavyweight. So makes more sense, I think, all the way around. Who plays? Unless he's going to get mad at us for suggesting he <laughs> should go down, which seems like he does sometimes. Who do you think plays Bigfoot Silva in that uh, TV movie? Mm. That seems like a tough one to cast. Is the dude who played Jaws in those Bond movies still alive? I mean, if he is, he's like 70. Oh, we, we, you could do some stuff with CGI, maybe. Why don't we just have Jar Jar Binks play him, if that's what you want to do? <laughs> hey, man, that's your guess is as good as mine. I don't know. Jesus fucking Christ. Well, you want to put The Rock out there? You want The Rock to play uh, Bigfoot Silva? What's your idea here? No, that's, that's, I mean, my point is, it's a, t- you know, you know who could do it? Daniel Day-Lewis. That man could do oh, anything. Oh, he can. That guy could do anything. He'll disappear into the role. <laughs> yes, he will. Yes, he will. All right, let's do, uh, just saying stuff and then we'll, we'll get out of here. Uh, Ben, this week, my just saying stuff goes out to the MMA media. Oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. damn you. Damn you, muckrakers. Trying to convince us that Travis Brown is just a striker. Oh, <laughs> damn you, instigators. Spreading your misinformation. Wait, what the fuck was Travis Brown talking about yeah, the other night? I don't know. That was weird. Yeah, just blamed, blamed the media for trying to... For telling everyone that he was a striker, stand-up guy. A stand-up guy. Moments after he had delivered a death-defying, breathtaking stand-up finish against against Gabe Gonzaga. Also, I don't remember seeing the article all about how Travis Brown was just a stand-up guy. I know. Neither I must do have I. missed that one. Yeah, but the, apparently that's what the media is on board with, trying to hoodwink everybody into thinking Travis Brown is just a stand-up guy. My internet must have been out that day. Didn't see it. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I don't know. 
I'm just saying that although we didn't get to see it on the live broadcast, we, video has surfaced now of Kat Zingano's entrance for a fight with Misha Tate, uh, and she appears to cry through pretty much the entire entrance, uh, which usually conventional wisdom would say is not a great sign for a fighter to be crying during the walkout. Then she went out there, took Misha Tate's best for two rounds, and then kicked her ass in the, in the third round. So I'm just saying, maybe crying is the new shouting yes, yes, yes on your way to the cage. <laughs> wow, yeah. Just saying. Just saying. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast. We'll be back next week to break down all of the happenings of UFC on Fox 7 or 8 or 9 or whatever we're at at this point. Uh, but until then, for this week, that's the show. We're done. We're through. We're out. What about the dude who plays Vincent Chase on uh, Entourage? He has a big head, right? He can do good things over. Oh, yeah. Is that a...